Welcome to the Information Entropy Podcast. I'm Mitchell, one of your hosts today. Uh, joined with me is Tom. Hiya. Really weird if one day we just had like some random, like, this is Dave. Honestly, I was, that's exactly what I was, that's just the way you phrased it. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. today, okay, yeah. <laughs> just today. Next week we'll have someone different. <laughs> this week... Uh, get ready for an explosive mix of science and comedy as we explore nuclear fusion. Based on Oppenheimer and our last episode on fission, today we are going to go over some fusion. Also, explain a bit more what fission is. If this is, if you're listening out of order, if you've got a podcast on random, which is a sign of chaos and a chaotic nature, like who who puts a podcast on shuffle? Like, yeah, that's wild. Imagine listening to like a D and D podcast and being like, you know what, we're just going to listen to it on shuffle, see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's particularly episodic, though. And I, most of our hours are not, apart from the odd one, like this one, mm. which kind of makes sense if you've listened to last week's before. Yes, that's true. So buckle up and let's ignite both your laughter and your mind. Welcome to the Information Entry Podcast with us. Let's dive in. And follow us Twitter at Information Entry Pod, Instagram, Information Entry Pod, Spotify, iTunes, whatever you like. We are there. We always enjoy getting a follow. We got a follower on, um, actually on Podbean. Oh, out sick. of all the places to get a follower, we got a follow on Podbean. So thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> if you can give us her ratings on those platforms, helps us massively. Any criticisms as well, if you want to give those to us on them, helps us out, makes us better. Uh, yeah, this week we're doing fusion. How's 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 how are you, how are you Tom? How are you doing? Oh, you it's feeling been a good? Rough, it's been it's been a rough it's day. Been it's been a, rough, a very rough day. I was fine. Day. Traveling this week, went to a wedding, great time. Um, took my friend to the airport at five a.m. yesterday morning, and then I got back and I, my body just went nah, just went straight into like full <laughs> fever, no shiver mode. Yeah. You you got up too early. It's not that much earlier than normally. It's only like an hour a, an hour earlier than I normally get up. Yeah, but um, six, six thirty. Yeah, Oof. I know. Um, but it means I I go to uni, work till like two three, and I'm like, oh, I've done my seven hours, eight hour day. So I'm gonna you, go. You, I'm gonna go uh, home. Tom's a rising grind. He's doing his his nine to five and his five to nine before we've even got up. Yeah, well, oh, before oh, 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 it was, I was, I was doing that five hours later than everyone else, and that just wasn't really working because everyone would leave, wow. and then I'd feel sad. I <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just lose motivation. So, yeah, um, my my current hyperfixation is the early morning grind. We'll see how long that lasts. Early morning grind, and uh, yeah. yeah. So yesterday I was just stuck in a fever dream in bed all day. Ah, oh, it was painful, <laughs> but it seemed <laughs> to be like a. A one day kind of done. I, th- I feel better today. Not 100%, but better. So if yeah. I sound slightly stuffed, uh, I am. Start saying stupid <laughs> things. We know, we know why. Hopped up on that paracetamol. Yeah, just get the aspirin in me. Get the aspirin. Yeah, I don't yeah. think I've ever had aspirin. No, it makes you feel slightly high. Oh. Yeah. Okay, maybe um, I should get some aspirin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no different to, I guess, codeine would make you feel right that's why people use codeine as a recreational drug do they? Um, yes they do oh, i didn't know that see see yeah. just not really in the drugs game to be honest it's it's a it's a it has to be a push for me to even have paracetamol oh yeah well, see, my mum <laughs> uh... i'm moaning there like oh 
Uh, and Grace is just like, get some paracetamol. And I'm like, no. Oh, I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> weakness. Yeah. Taking drugs is weakness entering the body. <laughs> <laughs> my body is a temple. Yeah. <laughs> Having uh, grown up with my mum, who was an A&E nurse, and, you know, worked on various wards, just as soon as we looked a little bit ill, we just get pills shoved in us. Just like paracetamol, ibuprofen, go. Uh, so yeah, it's a lot lower. Thre- not the threshold is not very high for me to take paracetamol. Um, That's fair. As bad as that probably is. I heard an ice cube and a wet blank, a wet tea towel is the way to solve all all issues. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Just wet tea towel. I heard they even cure broken arms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 Jesus. Or legs it, as well. I'm pretty sure that happened at school. Uh, is that like, do they still do that? So no, for anyone who doesn't no. know what we're referring to, because you had not a deprived childhood at an English primary <laughs> school. <laughs> a deprived childhood. <laughs> yeah, oh, gr- growing up, I guess, 90s, early 2000s, primary school, secondary school, no matter what injury you had, they would just get you a wet paper towel. And it's those like, horrible blue ones um which just have the texture of just the grossest texture ever the um, grossest texture and they just like oh yeah just wrap it in this and you'll be fine and they'll just send you back to class do you have a concussion yeah. wet paper towel are you <laughs> yeah, feeling that's, ill that's, wet paper that's, towel. that's the yeah like you've just thrown up a few times wet paper towel yeah just put that, just put that. <laughs> i don't know where they would put it on you just like forehead wrist mm. Yeah. The wrist was like a one trick. We'll just call yeah. you down. Yeah, we'll put it on your wrist. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's what you need. Oh, like, it was like some actual like witch witch doctor shit from the fifteen hundreds. Yeah. Middle Europe. Just ne- Oh like, yeah, but just put some leeches on you. And parents were never called to come pick you up. Like I'm I'm not sure if it's because I don't know like parents working or we lived in Chudley, so it was quite a yomp to get to school. Just, just to pick someone that's ill up, but never, never got called to be like, yeah, you need to come pick up your child. They're throwing up, and I've put a wet paper towel on his wrist, and it's not helping. So, <laughs> we've tried we've everything. We've tried we everything. God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm gonna, we're gonna do a second live uh, response <laughs> thing in the show. I'm gonna ask my family whether wet paper towels are still used in schools because a few of them are teachers. And uh, okay. hopefully by the end of the episode, we'll, we'll get a response. <laughs> we, well, by, well, no. Okay. <laughs> oh, dear. It's just... School was a wild time, especially when we were, because like, there was a lot of safety precautions that just weren't a thing. Like when we were in school, you could just walk, walk out. Because I know a lot in the... This is, this is specifically in the UK. I know we've got a lot of uh, American listeners who, to be honest, it may, they may have got the, the safety precautions before we did. But I, well, even even seven, eight years ago, I worked at a, a deaf academy where anybody could just walk on site. There were like, there was no gates, there were no fences to keep people out. You could essentially just walk, and it's on a main road, like in Exeter. Yeah. Well, I know the school that we used to go to now is fenced in. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like now they've got the fences. To like stop that, but when we were at school, you could just walk out. Yeah, many people did. Yeah, and I did at one point. 
get some get some bickies from the down the road. Oh, yeah, of course. I was about to just completely dox the the shop then, but uh, yeah, I won't do that. I just went and got a monster. You can't just dox a shop. You can dox an individual. Well, yeah, but you know where we used to go to school, it would made would have made it pretty obvious. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'll uh, I'll report back if we if we get an answer to this. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, well, now that we're eight minutes in and we've talked about things, I'm just about some noobs. I was, you've, you've probably you've probably seen this. Most people in the science arena, because it is an arena, it's cutthroat. Um, <laughs> would have probably seen this. This is the room temperature superconducting uh, thing conductor that apparently is 100 percent a thing now. It's real, apparently. Okay, you seen this? I mean, if you've not seen this. Potentially, um, honestly, anything I've seen in the last twenty four hours can just—I pretty much lost a day. Well, it's so. not—it's not actually the last twenty four hours. This has been in the news now for about a week, but I've been quite tentative because this has happened multiple times. There's there's been a few times where the news has been like room temperature superconductor, Bosh, we're ready to go. It's a real thing, everybody. Blah 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 blah. So, a Korean team of researchers released a paper on. Uh, one of their servers about their proposal to create a room temperature superconductor um and then a blockchain company reports that they they put a patent application through for a superconductor but it was approved now the issue okay. with this is like you can have um a patent approved without not like scientifically working Okay, so you can patent something without actual like proof of concept. Yeah, no, no, you proof of concept. You go like it does this, it does this. This is how it works. Blah 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 blah. Put yeah. it to the patent authority, and they go, yeah, it looks good. Boom. They're, they're, the patent authority do not check the science behind it. Oh, to I see. see. It right. Actually, does what they say it does. Yeah. Um, but you know, apparently, uh, there's two other labs have tested this, and it seems to have worked. Uh, okay. So, for, for those that don't know what a uh, superconductor is, essentially, it's a way of getting the electrons to line up uh, in whatever uh, environment they are in. Weird way of saying it, I understand. But if you imagine you've got a copper cable where the, elect- the ele- electrons run through, they're quite like sporadic. You'll have some that are up and down. It's not like a perfect line. Uh, and because they're all not going at the same speed, they're bumping into each other. And that's why um, if you put a lot of electricity through a cable that hasn't got the right stuff to protect it, uh, it generates a lot of heat. That's where the heat comes from. Yeah. If you didn't know. But what essentially a superconductor does is uh, it will make it essentially a perfect line so you've got lots of like um i'll say impurities but it's not it's just a perfect line it goes it's efficient blah 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 blah, blah. it allows like electrical current to go through with very little resistance right or no yeah, resistance 100%. ideally 100 percent um which is you know super important for um Essentially, the next if if this is true, it's one of like the next stages in technological evolution. I would say for us as a race, that's how oh, that's how important 100%. Yeah, superconductor yeah. is. 
like to do with generation of electricity, like flying cars, batteries, um, computers, computers, quantum computers. Yeah, not going to say saving the world for climate change, but they, if if you it would certainly be, help. Yeah, it would make a, a like a step in that direction to to help us. Because so that's why currently, it's very like the, the, the friction of electricity, say a resistance, uh, means we lose a lot of electricity. Right. Yeah. So if I send a hundred packets of electricity, maybe I don't know ninety arrive. Let's say that is not the units that electricity is used in, but I'm just trying to make it. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Simple. Um, whereas superconductivity would allow all the packets to arrive, and thus, you know, let's say even in that example, a ten percent increase in uh, productivity is a huge step. But yeah, sorry, carry on. Absolutely incredible. So it, it's been, superconductors have been made before, but you need a lot of cooling. Like you, you'll see the, the the liquid nitrogen being pulled over and then it floats and some person created a disc where like it goes around the outside. Have you seen that? Yes, they I have, like yeah. a, a circular track full of these magnets and then they like super cool a puck and then like yes. throw it around the side. Um, and it's essentially that but they would deem it it would be doable at room temperature which would be incredible because then you as I said one of the things we missed is travel because then you you can make trains uh just go incredibly quickly and incredibly efficiently I'd be like so, a maglev yeah a full maglev train that's cool yeah that's the that's the news of the week that's just straight up sci-fi that yeah straight up sci-fi stuff yeah um so we'll see we'll see what we make of it in the next couple of years it's like a oh the, the other thing <laughs> there's i was debating it. i was going to ask you which one you do is the uh what was the name of the drug called the cancer drug which one um the the new one that's gone into human trials well that we were speaking that's- about last week is it, it was last week the AOH one nine nine six. Oh, I don't know. I was just I know we were speaking about that last week, but I don't know of a specific drug. Yeah. Okay. So that's the AO. That's, that's the other big news is that human trials. It's called nineteen ninety six. Oh, the cancer killer that's... pill. AOH yeah. nineteen ninety six. Yes. Yes. So nineteen because that's when it was first started development. Twenty years in development. Um, it's going on to human humans. So that's imagine that's wild. Yeah, I just I just can't in my brain. I can't. I just to get to a time where you know, and there'll be such a like a like oh, just like sorry, you've got cancer. Here's a here's a pill. That's true. Yeah, that's just, crazy. Just like, yeah, just that just blows my mind. Maybe one day we're having out the amount of uh, people this will help. So yeah, yeah. good good that um, human trials uh, are starting. It targets a cancerous variant of a protein called proliferating cell nuclear antigen. In its mutated form, these nuclear antigens are critical in the replication of DNA and repair all expanding tumors. Uh, the drug AOH nineteen ninety six. 
targets these specific things. So the PCNA, the proliferating cell nuclear antigens, are like a major airline terminal hub containing multiple plane gates. Data suggests that the, these, these regions uniquely altered in cancer cells, and this allowed them to design a drug that targeted that and leaves all healthy cells unaffected. Our cancer-killing pill is like a snowstorm that closes a key airline hub, shutting down all flights in and out, um, only in planes carrying cancer cells. That's kind of wild. Yeah, absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy. So hopefully that'll be be soon. Yeah, that's crazy. Very cool. There's so um, it'll be, it'll be it'll be a year, two years tops, but just to know that it's in the pipeline. Oh, it'll be a while. Is, is, but the fact that we're there at that stage where we're human trying trialing this stuff right yeah i'd imagine it'd be another five ten years i don't think 10 i hope not 10 i think it just goes five. very it just goes a lot slower than we think sometimes yeah um, it's not one of those things that you can just chuck money and people out is it unfortunately not no what's the saying you can't 10 pregnant women can't make a baby in a month. No, nine pregnant men. Yeah, <laughs> nine so pregnant women it. can't make a baby in a you month. You can't get it's nine like... women pregnant and expect to have a baby in a month, I yeah. think is the... Yeah. Oh, well. Um, there's some other, like, really kind of disturbing and interesting news relating to the uh, cancer research world and bad, bad, awful practice. Um, but maybe I'll do that for the news next week because it's <laughs> been a fairly wanna... big story in uh, biology. Well, since we're twenty minutes into the show, yeah, should we talk about fusion? We can we can get on to nuclear fusion and uh, yeah. yeah, we'll we'll come back you to this what? next week. I've actually got some facts. Oh, <laughs> I don't. Ah, oh, surprise, mate. surprise, surprise! That Cal surprise, Cal surprise. Well, I did this research yesterday. Okay, I I don't even remember doing it. <laughs> That's fair. That is understandable. <laughs> um, so my my three facts for today. Uh, nuclear fusion emits no pollutants or greenhouse gases. The only byproduct of the fusion process, helium and a fast neutron, which carries the heat to make steam, meaning there is none of the long-lived radioactive waste produced by conventional nuclear fission reactors. Nice. That's what and we want. Fast, this is the clean yeah. energy we're after. See in Spider-Man yeah. 2, as in like Tobey Maguire, Doc Ock, th this, this was what he was on. This is what he was on, yeah. Um, there is no threat of nuclear meltdown like there is with nuclear fusion reactors of today because it doesn't rely on a chain reaction. It's literally feed it and then, you know, it has to keep stopping. In the event of equipment failure, small amount of fuel uh, available stops reacting instantly. And the, the plant cools automatically. Yeah, so incredibly safe. That's good. Uh, and my third one, Fusion will spark monumental scientific achievements. So, you know, we were talking about, um, what was it? I just talked about the maglev stuff. Superconductors. Superconductors, yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, superconductors, uh, this is also a vein, like, that in that same vein. Yeah, we, we've covered nuclear fusion in a lot of our news of the week over the past year and a and a bit however long we've been doing this specific podcast now um so there is active research on it and it is i think one of those i think it's possibly the next thing maybe other than 
supercomputers and all of that kind of quantum computing stuff, this is the thing that really would revolutionize the human race. Yeah. In all senses. It's uh, like the free, clean, unlimited energy. Anyone seen like Fallout uh four Fallout the series and all their like um science and tech is all nuclear based. It's essentially yeah. that. Once we hit that, there's just so many things that we have to hit to to try and stop global warming. Now, if we can hit these these few things, we can do a good job in making a dent in like making so we're not so reliant on fossil fuels and things that are destroying the environment. Yeah, and then it would be about okay, we 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 get nuclear fusion energy, and then but how do we store that? Do we store it as electricity? Does that and then we convert planes to electric, you know, all, all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um or is, is there the a thing? way once, to once... install small fusion reactors into planes and things like that, right? So uh, yeah, small 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 reactors or because of the and superconductors, you have batteries that could power planes. Yes. Yes. Um so that they kind of would go hand in hand, I suppose. Um, the foundation as well if you've either read that book series if you haven't do it it's great uh, or if you've seen the Apple TV series which season 2 comes out soon if it's not already out um, all of that is nuclear based power as well is it? yes oh, didn't, didn't yeah. know. Uh, it uses positrons and nuclear power sources derived from and the positrons are derived from nuclear power as well. It's just like science. So we'll just say a bunch of science words and hopefully the people will just, you know, suspension of disbelief. Yeah, pretty well, no, because Isaac Asimov was an actual physicist. Mm, I do believe. What a nerd. What a nerd. <laughs> Isaac who? <laughs> Let's see. Oh, he was the a guy. professor of biochemistry. Oh, so he has no idea about physics. Absolutely, crazy no stuff up. Well, you you say that, but if you, if you're like that high level, you you know people in the field that you can yes. be like, yo, can can you have a look at this and see if it makes sense in a sci-fi esque kind of thing? Uh, during his service in the army, Asimov took an IQ test, which he scored 160. So he is a nerd. So he is Call a nerd. It. Call it. Oh, we did our IQ tests. <laughs> I don't think we ever brought that onto the show. No, we didn't. <laughs> We'll just Slightly leave that above for average. Slightly, Slightly above, above average. average. Slightly yeah. above average. Um, okay. People that have like been through university. This is what, what I know. There's a lot of people who weren't, but my argument is people that have been through university will score better on those kinds of tests. I'm not going to say they're smarter because that's not how that works. But will score better on those kinds of tests. They probably had ex- exposure to those kinds of things before, haven't they? Right. Yeah. That's Where I mean. like their brain is probably more trained to decipher those kinds of questions yeah um right the last week i went over the structure of an atom so we could understand how fission and how fusion would work so maybe go check that out if you haven't already um basically i just went over protons neutrons electrons nuclei electron shells and isotopes it's not critical to understanding i think it just kind of helps uh, a little bit <laughs> when we spoke about the, the process. Um, I think it's critical. Okay, well, go listen then. Go back and listen. <laughs> right now. 
um, <laughs> fusion doesn't need the same level of kind of uh, introduction to that, um, but it does need a quick introduction to protium, deuterium, and tritium, since especially in artificial uh, nuclear fusion, these are the main elements that are used. So hydrogen, also known as protium, has three isotopes that we should kind of be aware of in this space. Um, isotopes are elements that have the same number of protons, but a different number of neutrons in their nuclei, meaning they have uh, more or less mass. Now, protium, or just as what we think of as hydrogen, has one proton in its nucleus, one electron in the first shell layer. It is the simplest element atom particle that we know of. Um, deuterium then has one proton and electron um, just as protium does but it also has a single neutron in the nucleus as well meaning it has twice the mass of uh, protium or hydrogen uh, since electrons pretty much have negligible mass most of the mass just comes from the uh, sorry the neutron and proton in the nucleus and then tritium uh, has one proton and electron, same as the others, but has two neutrons inside the nucleus, uh, meaning it has three times the mass of protium. Now, deuterium is a fairly stable isotope. We find it naturally, even. Um, but hydrogen is the most, or protium is the most common form of hydrogen. That's why we uh, label it as such. Tritium, though, is actually quite rare and radioactive and has a half-life of about 12 years. A half-life essentially just means how long does it take for the uh, substance to lose half of its mass. Uh, in this case, it's 12 years. Um, and yeah, so these are the two, deuterium and tritium are two elements that are mainly used in artificial nuclear fusion. So I, I imagine we'll mention them a little bit uh, this episode. So just so you know what they are and what we're speaking about, uh, that that's it. Got a question about the whole half-life thing. Does that mean it'll never get to zero? Uh, it is a bit of one of those things, yeah. Is this, isn't it like one of the fables about like half the distance every time and you, you'll never get there because if you keep Yeah, that's, um, what's it called? Achilles and the hare, is it? Yeah. The... Half-life is the time that it takes for half of the original value of some amount of radioactive element to decay. This also implies that one half-life is the time it takes for the activity of a source to fall to half of its original value. So it, when you're speaking about half-life, you're only looking at um, like the original, like the full thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm looking at a graph here, which is looking at the decay. Um, and it's like the number of half-lives it takes to fully decay for this thing goes from five because uh, five steps because it starts at 10 grams and then it takes is that years percentages oh, that's percentages uh, it takes one year to go to five second year to go to 2.5 third year to go to 1.25 fourth year to go to 0.625 and then after that it's like ne negligible um so yeah at that point you may consider it to be lost but essentially, yes, it would just keep halving. Um, and that's why I hate chemistry. <laughs> and that's why 
I hate chemistry. There's um, no reason to hate chemistry. Those damn chemists. The damn chemists. Bismuth 209 is the isotope of bismuth with the longest known half-life of any radioisotope that undergoes alpha decay. 83 protons and 126 neutrons. Okay, but what is the what is the half-life? All right, well, we'll never you, know. You're just failing me there. Cool. Uh, but yeah, so well, I think, think you would just keep calculating it as if it would never get to zero. So what's nuclear fusion then, mate? Explain the atoms. What happens? So nuclear fusion uh, yeah. is a reaction in which two or more atomic nuclei, usually deuterium and tritium, uh, and they are combined, pushed together, if you will, to form one or more different atomic nuclei and subatomic particles, neutrons or protons. Yeah. Um, the difference in mass between the reactants and products is manifested as either the release or the absorption of energy. Uh, in the case of artificial fusion, you're looking for the release of energy that we could then capture and turn into electricity or heat or whatever we would use to then uh, power stations and things like that. Um, and then the difference in mass arises due to the difference in nuclear binding energy between atomic nuclei before and after the reaction. The fusion process uh, powers active or main sequence stars. Um, and also we are attempting to use it in artificial scenarios at the minute. Um, yes, uh, there's been some some breakthroughs recently. Yeah, quite the the jet laboratory. strong breakthroughs as well. Actually, I'd say. Um, I've got a couple of requirements here for fusion. Um, so deuterium and tritium is a key reaction in many fusion-based energy research projects, and essentially it forms a helium nucleus. So the fusion of deuterium and tritium results in the formation of a helium nucleus, which is also known as an alpha particle. This consists of two protons and two neutrons. During this process, an additional neutron is emitted from the particle. This neutron carries a significant amount of kinetic energy, which can be used to heat the surrounding materials in a fusion reactor. This reaction can be presented as deuterium plus tritium equals helium plus a neutron. Now it goes to helium because helium, which is the two neutrons, two protons, um, is a lot more stable. And both the electrons will be carried over as well from the two particles. So the only thing left over is an extra neutron which fires around in, in space, or the confined fires. space. Um, the fusion of, yeah, releases an enormous amount of energy, much more than what is produced in a conventional nuclear fission reactions. Uh, as we spoke about last week in nuclear power plants or nuclear weapons. This is why nuclear fusion is considered a promising and environmentally friendly energy source. However, achieving controlled nuclear fusion is extremely challenging because it requires extremely high temperatures and pressure to overcome the electrostatic repulsion between positively charged atomic nuclei. So if you've ever been a child and had access to magnets, you've probably tried to push like the two poles together like the positive poles together and you'll find that they'll repel each other atoms do the same thing the nuclei both positively charged they don't want to they repel each other but in fusion 
you're overcoming that electrostatic energy, the repulsion, and forcing them to collide. And you do that with a high pressure and high temperature, because temperature is just a measure of kinetic energy in part particles. So they're traveling faster, they have a higher temperature. If they're traveling fast enough, they can overcome the repulsion that they have and collide into each other and allow this process to happen, essentially. Um, researchers are working on various experimental fusion devices, such as tokamaks, and laser-driven inertial confinement to try and harness the potential of nuclear fusion. Um, so I hope that kind of explains it. Yeah. In a simple enough sense. Have you got anything to add to that? No, 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 no. no. Okay. Oh, what the uh, the jet laboratory? What's that? Uh, it's the UK-based jet laboratory which smashed its own record. I think it was last year. Uh, with the amount of uh, energy that it managed to extract from squeezing together two forms of hydrogen, it produced ah. fifty-nine megajoules of energy for five seconds, which is eleven megawatts of power. If you didn't know, so fifty-nine megawatts of power. Megajoules. 59 megajoules of energy went to, yeah. what, 11 megawatts? Yeah, which is 11 megawatts of power. So one megawatt is one million watts. One megawatt is enough electricity for the instantaneous demand of 750 homes. So 750 times 11. Yeah is 8,250 homes in how many seconds? Five? Yeah, five. Bloody hell. So Bl that's what, that's how efficient it is. <laughs> if we can get it to last longer than five seconds. You know, they say that a lot about different people. <laughs> it's about to say about that. Many, <laughs> many, many people <laughs> wish for that. Many people wish for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I, one of the issues, I think, is not only sustaining for longer than five seconds, but how we would store and capture that energy, right? Um, so maybe it could even be more efficient than that at some point. But yeah, I mean, powering eight over 8,000 homes for five seconds worth of energy capture seems pretty good. Yeah, if we had that superconductor ready to go, we could then funnel it into a battery that's, you know... Yeah could do it by the steam you have to do steam because it's all steam isn't it well it is with nuclear fission at the moment isn't it yeah it was shame really but yeah it's interesting I just yeah as you said last week it just kind of surprises me that the, the most efficient way we found of capturing nuclear energy is to boil water and get the steam to rotate some blades always Always, it's always, it's always. It all comes down to like human and fire and boiling stuff to turn a blade. But yeah. even then, if so, well, no, like when you think about the aspects that would affect of these superconductors, the blades that turn as well, that generate would also be more efficient. So, yeah, yeah, that's true. Like the production would be more efficient. The the transport would be more efficient. The storage more efficient. Oh, Everything, yeah. all the pipeline, the whole thing would be, yeah. It would be a massive shift in infrastructure to support it. Um, yeah, it would take a while, but, but you know, yeah, create some jobs. No, it would, 
yeah, yeah. No, it'd be great. Um, yeah. All righty. Um, what, 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 what have you got to speak about? What's uh, uh, I've got the current some current stuff on fusion uh, all the history of fusion oh whatever tickles your fancy okay well the current stuff on fusion makes no sense if i don't do like the history of <laughs> fusion so i'm gonna take well, you let's through the history then the history yeah like a journey through the captivating world of fusion research and the milestones that shape the scientific odyssey which is fusion uh it all began back in time I can't remember when. Back in the 1930s, I believe, uh, when the world was captivated by the prospects of nuclear energy, the idea of fusion was already whispering its potential at that point. But until the 1950s, uh, we saw the first successful demonstration of the fusion reaction, thanks to the monumental efforts of the researcher of the Joint European Tourist, the jet facility in the UK. It's all thanks to us, everyone. You're welcome. We did it again. It's all us. Um, it's just, it just seems ridiculously egotistical to say to be like <laughs> without the English fusion is nothing um, but from there because it's a joint European it's, it's, it's just it was based in the UK but it was all of Europe from there uh, some momentum built up in the 1960s uh, we ushered in a series of groundbreaking milestones the Tokamak's concept which is an ingenious device that uses powerful magnetic fields to confine and control superheated plasma. That takes center stage. Still being used to this day, like the, the ITER project, that I'll get onto a little bit, that uses a, a new version of a tokamak. Um, with, after the that like the first idea, there was the T3, which is a, a project in the Soviet Union, and the Alcator A? Which I believe is the the US uh what they did. US version of the when they came up with a token map. Um then fast forward to the nineteen seventies and eighties. Uh we witnessed the most significant leap forward, a breakthrough in the understanding of the importance of high confinement modes, particularly H mode. This led to the development of token maps like the Ject and TFTR, showcasing their exceptional ability to reach higher temperatures and sustain fusion reactions for longer durations. Um and then 21st century brought a new era of international collaboration and innovation with projects like ITER. Uh, ITER, which is essentially the world's largest tokamak, is currently being built. Uh, it's taking fusion research to unprecedented levels and demonstrating the feasibility of sustained fusion reactions. Um, ITER, which stands for the way in Latin, uh, is being built in the some in some France in Provence. I oh, know, not Provence. It's Provence. Vinos of Verdun. There's 35 nations uh, collaborating to build what is the world's largest tokamak. It's a nuclear fusion device that's been designed to prove that feasibility of large scale carbon free source of energy based in the same principle that powers the sun and the stars. Um, it'll be the first fusion device to produce net energy. Oh. Why, is that, why is that important, Tom? Well, I guess net energy means you're profiting energy rather than yeah because putting so much it, energy just, in yeah. to start the process and not getting enough energy back out like the, the jet stuff it's not they're not energy devices but this would be the first one um it'd be the first fusion device to maintain fusion for a long period of time it'd be the first fusion device to test the integrated technology materials and physical regimes necessary for commercial production of a fusion-based electricity it's it's pretty unique I've been there, around the outside. 
Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I have a family member who worked on it. That's cool. Yeah. Lived out in France. Living that high life. I can't say that again. <laughs> I was living in France. Um, yeah. It's good. Nice place. When does the uh, ITA open then? When does it start? I don't actually know off the top of my head. Because it, it, I'm sure they had a date, but it got moved back all that jazz. Oh, I'm sure. COVID as well. COVID as well. All that, all that shenanigans. Yeah. Um, the machinist is live. There's some specific... Uh, specific oh, my voice in the morning. Specifically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, specifically uh, to do a few things. First one is produce... 500 megawatts of fusion power. So the world record currently is held by the European Tokamak jet in 1997. 16, just said that's been billion. Oh, no, no, that is the most. 70 megawatts of fusion power uh, for total heating power of 24 megawatts. ITER is designed to produce tenfold of energy, so that's Q10, or 500 megawatts of fusion power for 50 megawatts of input heating power. That's like okay, yeah, yeah. What you get, in, what you get out. Uh, so it's supposed to be the first one to produce a in history to produce a net gain, uh, and it will prepare the way for other machines to prove that it can do it. Fantastic stuff. Um, to demonstrate the integrated operations of technology in the fusion power plant, it's to bridge the gap between smaller today's small scale experimental fusion devices. It's brought together a whole bunch of different things, and the idea is to um, to prove that they all work together and it's perfect. Nothing can happen. Nothing's going to go wrong. Yeah, <laughs> they won't make a black hole or anything. Nah, nah. Well, the the <laughs> hadron collider is more likely to create a black hole. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, have you have you watched um, War of the Worlds yet? Uh, I've, watched, I've watched the first season, and I think like four episodes of the second season. Okay, it takes a bit of a left turn, but there's one bit <laughs> where she just sticks her hand in the collider right it gets <laughs> that's wow. where we get to at one point so when you say yeah. she is this like the main protagonist of, but the, no one of the science Girl. ladies okay the the french french science lady oh okay yeah uh yeah she uh and she sticks the hand in the super collider it gets a bit weird um, yeah <laughs> Uh, the third thing is to achieve a deuterium triterium plasma in which the reaction is sustained through internal heating. So fusion research today is at the threshold of exploring burning plasma, one in which way the heat from the fusion reaction is confined within the plasma efficiency enough for the reaction to be sustained for a long duration. Scientists are com- confident that the plasma in ITER will not only produce much more fusion energy, but will re- remain stable for a longer period of time. So not as it like does better, but it also... Uh, is more stable. So it produces yeah. more energy and it's more stable than the rest. Um, it's to t- and the fourth is to test tri- trite- tritium breeding. Uh, so one of the missions of the larger, the later stages of ITER operations is to demonstrate the feasibility of producing uh, tritium within the vacuum vessel. The world's supply of tritium used with deuterium to fuel the fusion reactor is not f- sufficient enough to cover the needs of future power plants. So ITER will provide a unique opportunity to test a mock-up in-vessel titerium breeding blanket in a real fusion environment. Well, it makes sense. Yeah. To uh, to want to do that. 
Yeah, I guess like we just haven't needed tritium that much, right? So before now, no one's been mass producing it. So we just don't yeah. have enough to test <laughs> nuclear fusion. Just haven't been bothered. Yeah. That's cool. So this is essentially what we would refer to as thermonuclear fusion, um, <laughs> which is one of the two ways that we uh, are currently researching and undergoing fusion at the minute. And um, yeah, essentially it's, as we've already discussed the process of nuclear fusion uh, using high temperatures, so much that the temperatures uh, cause it to become plasma, as you said. And the confinement is important because it forces the atoms uh, with extreme thermal kinetic energies to smash into each other. Now, we have the controlled variants here on Earth. So that's where some or all of the energy released can be harnessed for constructive purposes. Um, or you have the uncontrolled versions, which is what we might find in um, thermonuclear weapons or also the insides of stars. Um, so the, there's a couple of things to, to note here. One is the Coulomb barrier, which is named after a uh, Charles Augustin de Coulomb, I think a French scientist uh, in the 50s or 60s. And as we said earlier uh, about that electrostatic energy, this is the barrier needed, the amount of energy needed to overcome the forcing of two atoms together. Now, that the high temperature... Um, given by these criterion states that enough accidental collisions of high enough energy will allow for the fusion of particles. Uh, this is within a thermonuclear fusion reaction. Um, in deuterium-tritium fusion reactions, the energy necessary to overcome the Coulomb barrier is 0.1 MeV. And let me just check. I know what MeV stands for before I... Uh, maximum extractable value. No, that's got to be wrong. Oh, it's an electron volt. It's a single 0.1 electron volts. Uh, converting between energy and temperature shows that the 0.1 electron volt barrier would be overcome at a temperature in excess of 1.2 billion Kelvin. It's a lot of Kelvin, isn't it? Honestly, it's more Kelvin than we could ever expect to <laughs> reach or harness. Stick at. <laughs> so... The fact that actually we don't need to actually reach 1.2 billion Kelvin is important because we wouldn't be able to do that and sustain it because it would cost too much energy and probably be a bit too hot. Um, but there are two things that happen within a thermonuclear reaction that allow us to not actually have to get to that level. So temperature is a measure of average kinetic energy within a system. So what that means is I've got my cup of coffee let's say it's currently sitting around 40 degrees celsius because we're sensible people when we use celsius um now not every single bit of that coffee is going to be 40 degrees some might be 39 some might be 42 but the average is 40. yeah so that implies that some nuclei at this temperature would have much higher energy than the 0.1 megavolt threshold, while others would be much lower. Um, it is the nuclei in the high energy tail of the velocity distribution that account for most of the fusion reactions. Because again, temperature is also a measure of heat, 
but heat is a byproduct of how quickly particles are moving or the kinetic energy vibration that they have in a plasma they're just moving around they're not vibrating mm. um the other effect is quantum tunneling now the nuclei do not actually have to have enough energy to overcome the Coulomb barrier completely if they have nearly enough energy some weird quantum bullshit happens and they can just tunnel through the remaining barrier um, so for these reasons fuel at lower temperatures can still undergo fusion events even if it's at a lower rate now maybe one day we will be able to get up to 1.2 billion kelvin and sustain that and then we'll have the most fuel efficient nuclear fusion reactions but for now it's going to be a lot lower than that but it's still highly efficient compared to today's standard of energy production um so yeah that's just a quick rundown on thermonuclear fusion yeah. fusion fusion um, and i think that's what the majority of uh, like power plants or nuclear fusion research is currently using uh, right now. There is beam-to-beam -beam or like beam-target fusion as well, which is essentially particle accelerators uh, send light ions around really quickly and target it at certain things, but it's just not that efficient. So, yeah, you could think of more of like the particle accelerator at CERN. Mm. Um, and they just smash two beams of ions into each other. But... Yeah, a lot of energy is lost in this sense. Um, and it just can't happen in cold environments. So, yeah, not very efficient right now. But we'll see. Maybe in the future. We'll see. Indeed we shall. Indeed we shall. All right. So we've got about 10 minutes left. What, um, what else have you got on the docket? That's it. Nuclear fusion. That's all we have. That's it. All, all, all there is. Um, I've got a little bit on how nuclear fusion relates to stars and a, something called stellar nucleosynthesis, which I saw and I was like, that sounds cool. <laughs> okay. And yeah, yeah. I am a nerd for things that just sound cool. Um, so <laughs> an important fusion in the uh, important process in the fu fusion process, sorry, is stellar nucleosynthesis. And this is something that happens in the thermonuclear reaction process as well. So stellar nucleosynthesis is the creation of chemical elements by nuclear fusion. So as we explained earlier, you've got deuterium, you've got tritium, they combine together to produce helium and a neutron. Helium is the next element up the periodic table from hydrogen, right? So it's created through the, um, the fusion process, the next element along. Mm -hmm. Now, this happens inside stars as well. It involves the fusion of lighter elements into heavier ones under extreme conditions of heat and pressure found in the star's core and plays a crucial role in the formation of all elements beyond hydrogen and helium, which were produced in the early stages of the universe or the, during the Big Bang. So whilst we only have enough pressure and temperature to create helium, also because we don't have the resources to react with helium uh, and helium isotopes to create the, the next element, in stars, they, they do. And they'll build, so they'll have all their deuterium tritium, let's say, 
they'll form lots of helium. And once there's barely any hydrogen left, the helium will start, because there's enough of it colliding, the helium will start um, colliding to produce the next elements up the chain. So you have main sequence stars, which are low to medium mass. So you think like our sun. They primarily undergo hydrogen fusion to form helium through the proton-to-proton chain or the carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle. Helium is the primary product of these stars, and they continue to fuse hydrogen into helium as long as they remain in the main sequence phase. So as they run out of hydrogen, um, it's not that they begin to die, but they go through the next stage of their life cycle. Red giants, which are low to intermediate mass stars. Um, As main sequence stars near the end of their lives, they exhaust their core hydrogen fuel and start fusing helium into heavier elements like carbon and oxygen through a process called helium burning. Red giants can further fuse helium and other elements to form heavier elements up to iron and nickel. The exact sequence of nuclear reactions depends on the star's mass because there'll be more pressure and temperature. You then have supermassive stars, which are stars of high mass. Um, These are stars which are much more massive than our sun, have more intense gravitational pressure and temperatures in their cores. They undergo more complex and rapid fusion processes, producing elements up to iron and nickel through successive stages of fusion. However, they don't have enough mass to produce elements beyond iron through fusion alone. Supernova explosions. When a high-mass star exhausts its nuclear fuel, it undergoes a violent supernova explosion where the core collapses and the shockwave generated drives temperatures and pressure to extreme levels. During the supernova event, elements heavier than iron, such as gold, silver, uranium, and many others are rapidly synthesized through a process called rapid neutron capture. And the only other place where uh, new elements are made is in neutron star and black hole mergers. So neutron stars and black holes can merge under very specific conditions, leading to another type of nucleosynthesis called kilonova, uh, or the R process. These mergers mergers, produce additional heavy elements beyond what supernovae can create. So all of the elements that we ever kind of interact with on a day-to-day basis have been created inside stars. And... uh, I think that's quite cool. I think that's neat. I think that's neat. We are nothing but a collection of stardust. Yeah. And ain't that swell. Ain't that swell. Um, so yeah, literally, most the most abundant elements in the universe, hydrogen and helium, are used up in main sequence stars, or created in main sequence stars, uh, the helium that is. And everything beyond that was created during the star's death or in a supernova reaction. Now, there are some elements which we have created synthetically and are never found naturally in the wild. Or wild, I say environment. Um, or to our knowledge, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, everything else has come from the collapsing and exploding of a star. So yeah bunch of space nerds i had someone say to me at the weekend that the earth and the sun were on like the same time scale for dying and i was like there's no way that that's true and you are <laughs> just saying random things what are what you does it mean about like the earth dying i was like the earth is gonna die way sooner than the sun is gonna blow up like don't <laughs> what 
But what does it even mean by the Earth dying? Like, it's never going to die. Well, uh, will it? We... Will it still harbor life? Who knows? No. no but will it die? Is that, is that what they mean by dying? I think so. Yeah, I think that's what they implied. And was, I think it was like a well, global warming. We don't have to worry about it because the sun's going to die and we're going to die. And I was like, oh, they think the sun sun's just going to explode in the next thirty years. That's what I said, and I was like, the sun is it's got like a, a good. A good six to eight billion years left on it, I think. <laughs> I was gonna, like, I didn't know, I didn't have the exact time scale in my head. So I was like, I'm pretty sure it's six billion is the number that I'm looking for. Seven to eight billion years. Okay. No, I lowballed it, but still. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's one of the more ridiculous things I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's. Even if we did last that long, the only way that makes sense is because the sun is going to explode and or like swallow us up because it'll expand. Yeah, it'll expand so much that Earth gets destroyed. That's the only way that I can make what that person said make sense. Is yes, they're on the same time frame because it's completely dependent on the sun, not frying us alive. Um, and it's gonna, but it's and it's gonna. Um, yeah that's kind of wild that's a wild statement cool cool yeah uh, that's when I heard it I was like <laughs> what yeah, we should do like wild science statements of the week <laughs> just go on to reddit sort by controversial on a science subreddit and see what people say yeah that is um, okay so I've had a reply from two teachers okay um, opposite ends of the country <laughs> Right, so one in the well, I say the country. I'm England, opposite ends of England. This is one very south England, one fairly north. Um, I said, question to all teachers in this group: In school, no matter what the injury was, we'd always be given a wet paper towel in the hope that would fix it. Concussion, <laughs> thrown up, broken arm, wet paper towel. Is that still the case? Uh, first teacher, of course, wet paper towel fixes everything. Second teacher. Yes, most definitely. All wet paper towel. Have a drink, and if it's really bad, you can sit on a chair. <laughs> oh, not stand on it. You can sit on a yeah. chair. Glad to see the world has moved on. Wet paper towels, the, the miracle cure. Yeah. Jeez, it's funny. Just. Uh, so, yeah. Oh dear. I, I I don't know why we didn't just uh discover wet paper towel sooner. Yeah, like I if, feel if, like <laughs> during the dark ages they had wet paper towels. Yeah. So much could have been saved. That's funny. Right. I guess we'll we'll, we'll leave it there. A couple minutes to go, but I I think that's all right. Um yeah, don't forget to share this with your friends, families, co-workers, scientists, so we can annoy them with our perfect understanding of nuclear fusion. Yeah. Also, get in contact. What is the most serious injury you've seen used for a wet paper towel? <laughs> <laughs> I'm genuinely curious oh, uh, what people's experiences dear. are with, like, how bad has something got and someone's just used wet paper towel? Yeah. Um. So let us know. You can do that on Twitter at InfoEntropyPod, Instagram, InformationEntropyPod, um, and wherever you can leave a comment, whether you're listening to Spotify, iTunes, 
Uh, yeah, let us know. That'd be great. And of course, leave us a rating if you can. And uh, yeah, it helps us out massively. It does. It does help us out massively. Yeah. Oh, dear. Uh, anything else to add? Uh, no, that's it for me. Also, I've got nothing more to add here. All right, then. Uh, the teachers are currently laughing about this in the chat. Yes. <laughs> Still cool. having, having like a squabble. <laughs> um, oh, okay. I had a quick, a, a quick extra here. Oh yeah. Um, so this comes from a, a teacher who's been been in the business for a while. Oh okay, long in the tooth. Yeah, she says totally still the preferred mode of recovery. This is the the wet paper towel. Yeah. Also a plantain leaf, thanks to lots of schools having forest school lessons. Great for stings. Um, oh, that, and then yeah. uh, what's it said, called? Obviously, any plantain leaf is any leaf that is a leaf and green. Dock leaves. <laughs> dock so leaves. The, yeah, yeah, I think. Dock see, leaves. If you get the sting, this is. I'm not sure. Like, is stinging nettles? How prevalent in other countries are stinging nettles? Oh, I got stung by a stinging nettle the other day for the first time in about 15, 16, <laughs> 17 years. Uh, it was wild. No dock leaves <laughs> around though. No dock leaves out to save you. Oh, crazy. It's a shame. Yeah. All right. We'll leave you there. Um, yeah. Have a good one. Oh, we'll catch dear. you next week. Let Do us know well. your wet paper towel stories. <laughs> <laughs> Peace. Peace. <laughs> <laughs>